0: hello fellow foodies this is dr cassandra quave and you're listening to foodie pharmacology the science podcast for the food curious this episode has a slightly different setup from what you may be used to when listening to foodie pharmacology this interview is part of a series that i did in collaboration with the international treaty on plant genetic resources for food and agriculture in this series i talk to different experts about the trends they observe in plants that are important to our agriculture diets and health. I hope you enjoy. Plants have an important role to play in our survival and have adapted with us through several ages. It's fascinating to see that the plants that we grow and eat have changed over the millennia and tell us a lot about our history. Who is watching these trends? How can we watch these trends? What do they tell us? And how can they inform our planning for the future? Welcome to this episode of Treaty Talks. This podcast is brought to you by the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture, an international agreement hosted by the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave, and I welcome my co hosts Alvaro Toledo and Luigi Guarino. Hey, both. May we can start by some introductions. Let's start with you, Alvaro.
1: Hi, my name is Álvaro Toledo. I'm an agronomist with a focus on crop sciences and plant conservation. I've worked in FAO over the last two decades, uh, mostly on conservation and sustainable use of agricultural biodiversity for sustainable farming.
0: Awesome. How about you, Luigi?
2: Hi, Cassie. I'm Luigi Guarino. I'm Director of Science at the Global Crop Diversity Trust in uh, Bonn, Germany. And uh, for the past... 30 years or so, I've been working on plant genetic resources conservation for different international organizations around the world.
0: In today's episode, we will discuss global trends in the production, trade, research, and conservation of crop varieties. What do these trends tell us about the changing world that we live in? And how can we respond to these? There are several institutions worldwide that hold key parts of the answers to such questions. There are gene banks and botanical gardens where collections of plant species are conserved and studied. We have universities, national research centers, and breeding institutes. And there are, of course, the institutions that you are both affiliated to. Alvaro, can you describe the function of the international treaty in this landscape?
1: So the the DFL plant treaty It's the only international agreement that's fully dedicated to safeguarding, conserving and exchanging the genetic diversity of the plants that we farm and we eat around the world. Such diversity is critical to global food security and it's critical to sustainable uh, agriculture and sustainable future for everyone. So the idea is that the treaty implementation brings together farmers, plant curators and breeders and other scientists to enable cooperation across borders. The treaty aims at conserving food diversity for future generations, but also at ensuring that what we share today, the plants that we share today, the plant genetics that we share today, benefit everyone in a fair and equitable manner.
0: That's great. And Luigi, how does this relate to the Crop Trust?
2: Well, the Crop Trust is part uh, of the treaty in the sense that it's Uh, an element of its funding strategy. What we are trying to do is raise money for an endowment, a trust fund in in essence, that will support the costs of running, maintaining international gene banks for the long-term in perpetuity, essentially. So that's our core, core work, but we also raise money for shorter term projects on the conservation and sustainable use of crop diversity.
0: So if I'm understanding correctly, both the Crop Trust and the International Treaty play a role in safeguarding plant genetic resources and enabling collaboration and exchange. I wonder though, if the International Treaty covers all of the crops and crop varieties that are relevant to food and agriculture?
1: Yes, the treaty does cover all plant genetic resources for food and agriculture, but uh, the treaty's multilateral system, which is truly innovative solution created through the treaty applies to a more restrictive list uh, of around 64 of our most important crops. So just to go a little bit into it, our food and agriculture includes many types of crops and forages. You have cereals, pulses, fruits and vegetables, nuts, roots and tubers, herbs and spices, oil and industrial plants. So lots of plant species, but what is most important is that Within each of those plants, there's a wide genetic variability, and which, translate, which translates into different traits and features of each plant variety. So the idea of the multilateral system of the treaty is simple. Anyone that wants to use a plant genetic resources for research, breeding, or training can easily access the treaty pool of genetic resources. Everyone around the world uses the same conditions to provide and to use these genetic resources. You can use the genetics when you are working to address a food and agriculture challenge, let's say to breed a plant variety that matures earlier, to adapt to climate change, but you cannot use the genetics to develop a new cosmetic or a medicine.
0: Well, I'm wondering then also, why is it important for countries to participate in the treaty? What if some countries don't exchange their plant genetic resources across borders? What do we do in those cases?
1: Well, no country is self-sufficient when it comes to genetic resources for food and agriculture, for food security. All of the countries grow plants that or eat plants that come from other parts of the world. And therefore, every time there's a new challenge in those countries, they need to somehow access materials, plant genetic materials that are Coming from from very remote parts of the world, and that happens across the world. So no country is self sufficient. Everyone depends on international cooperation to uh, adapt their crops to the challenges they face, be it uh, nutritional challenges, climate change challenges, or poverty alleviation
2: challenges.
0: Luigi, do you have any examples uh, that could illustrate this?
2: Sure. Let's start with coffee, for example. Uh, you know, millions of people around the world drink coffee but only a certain number of countries around the world, grow coffee. And in fact, the, the bulk of coffee production is uh, currently happening in places like Brazil, for example. But if you look at where the diversity of coffee is, where all the different types of coffee that are present in the wild or in farmer's fields, you know, the diversity is uh, located in, in Africa. So there's interdependence amongst countries for the diversity of coffee. And going the other way around, for example, the important crops in, in Africa are cassava, for example, also called manioc, and, and maize. These are crops that went the other way. They went from South America to, to Africa. The potato went from South America to all over the world, Europe, Africa, China. So those countries are dependent on the diversity of potato that is originally was originally found in Latin America and which is much greater in Latin America than anywhere else. There was another example published recently, which showed that a pest of sorghum uh, called the sugarcane aphid resistance to it developed in Haiti uh, recently or spread in Haiti recently. But actually, the original gene that provided that resistance came from East Africa. So uh, there's lots of examples from all over the world of. One country depending on the genetic diversity of um, of a of a crop from a very distant part of the world. That's basically
1: these examples and and the realization of of our interdependence on on crop diversity is at the heart of the of the negotiation and adoption of the FAO international treaty, two thousand and one. But what we're looking now is a situation where the world of food and agriculture has radically changed since uh, since that time. First of all, because since the treaty adoptions, the approach to food security has uh, evolved uh, from a more focused uh, approach on calorie intake, which was the one we were having at the beginning of the century, to one which is much more looking at the double burden of malnutrition expanding across the world. So basically the coexistence of undernutrition along with overweight. So that sort of challenge uh, requires more plants in our food basket and that requires that 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 change changes our our vision on on not only global food security but our interdependence on, on crops, you know? Another example, another trend uh, which uh, we wouldn't have really un- understood so well 20 years ago is how climate change is affecting the crops we grow. We probably would have not foreseen that in some areas of Africa uh, far- farmers would not be able to use maize and would need to experiment again with uh, crops such as sorghum and millets. No? So climate change is shifting the ways in which we use crops To uh, and we are adaptive. So that's another trend we wouldn't have forecasted uh, uh, so neatly 20 years ago. What we also see is that across the world, farming communities see new opportunities for their livelihoods and economies by shifting to new crops also, a lot of, even some new commodity crops. So as a strategy, diver- diversification is becoming clearly a, a strategy that many farmers around the world are using for their livelihoods. And that trend of using new new crops and new diversity, we see it across the world. And for the demand for more pla- plants in our diets is increasingly enormously. And uh, there's new players interested in experimenting with crops, and with crop varieties. Yeah, in real terms, both the demand for crops is changing in ways we wouldn't have really understood when the treaty was
3: adopted.
0: Now, I'm looking at this really exciting publication that brings together around 100 key metrics on the plants that are most crucial to the human diet on a global scale. These are the metrics that tell us which crops we produce most, transport the most, which ones are the most evenly used across the globe, and which crops we invest a lot of research into, and which are best to be conserved, and more. It's a hugely impressive collection of data, Luigi, what does it tell us and how can we use this collection?
2: Well, it's an incredibly rich data set which tells us a lot of things. Let us let me just pick out a couple. First of all, it, it tells us that although we often hear that humanity relies on a very small number of, of crops for the bulk of its calories, and that's absolutely true, it's also true to say that Actually, hundreds of different crops are, are widely grown, traded, present in the food supply, and, and researched all, all around the world. Not as many as there, there, there could be, I suppose. Um, we have data here for about, for over 350, but some studies say that up to 7,000 crops have been cultivated since agriculture began around the world. So there's still, there's still more that we can do to diversify agriculture. But having said that, it's not as bad as we sometimes think. And the other thing is that crop use is is not is not static. As, as Alvaro said, you know, there's there's been changes, and these changes will continue. One of the trends that is highlighted in the document, for example, is that there's been a uh, what the authors call an oil crop revolution in the past twenty or thirty years. You know, I mean. I, great increase in the use of oil crops around the world. And very likely, given the surge of interest in non-meat protein around the world, there's very possibly going to be a surge in the use of pulses and other legumes in the future. So the, the use of crops changes in time and varies uh, from place to place on on in the world. And the study really, really puts numbers on that.
0: That's great. Well, we called the main author of the study, Colin Curry, who's a scientist and data specialist at the San Diego Botanic Garden and the International Center for Tropical Agriculture. We asked him who the potential users of the study and the underlying data are.
4: There are a lot of different types of organizations and people that need information on crops. There are folks involved in the production of crops or in the trade of crops economists or producers, farmers, of course, who need to know about crop production and about trade and the economics of such. There are also nutritionists and food security professionals that really need to know about consumption and trends. And then there are plant breeders who are interested mostly in where they can obtain new sources of diversity and how they could get them and how they can work with them and what is promising and what is not. And so One of the big challenges and and interesting questions for this study was, could we find all kinds of different sources of information across all those different fields and put them together in a meaningful way so that ideally many of those folks could find this information in one source and also find it in a holistic way where they could look not only at production, but also about nutritional quality, or uh, also look at uh, knowing how how much a crop is produced, also look at the genetic resources and how much it's conserved. Where all this comes together, I think, is in the Plant Treaty itself. In the Plant Treaty and in the negotiations at the international level, all this information would be helpful to be known, to be able to understand where these crops are at, how much countries need them or want to work together in a multilateral way to conserve them and trade them, and how we should devote international resources towards various different crops.
0: So I understand from Colin that the data is relevant for various actors who, in one way or the other, follow and respond to trends in crop use. For this episode, we talk to the people who are on the so-called front line of such trends and have seen the uses of plants shift over time. We'll first hear from someone who experienced this on a very personal level. Edwin Kalengama is a smallholder farmer in Malawi. He used to farm tobacco, but with seasons changing in Malawi, with less and unpredictable rainfall, he had more trouble getting a good harvest and earning his living. When he walked by a demonstration plot with pigeon peas and groundnuts and heard about the advantages he got interested and decided he would give it a try growing these crops on his own land edwin saw the multiple advantages the leaves and roots of pigeon peas improve the soil structure and he can use the stalks as firewood because pigeon peas and groundnuts do well even with the little rain he increased his harvest and his income Edwin is now an advocate for the crop and teaches others how to plant it. He also shares his recipes to use the crops in various dishes. Edwin is involved in an international treaty benefit-sharing fund project. When you are listening to this and would like to learn more about this project or Edwin's story, you can see a link to more info in the show notes. Chef Fatmata Benta is from Sierra Leone and now based in Accra in Ghana. She is a chef, a food system advocate, and owns a nomadic restaurant called Dine on a Mat. She started a foundation called Fulani Kitchen Foundation. We asked her why plant diversity is important to her as a chef. It's very important because I think
3: our foods, our grains, they are so sustainable and then the pace at which food is moving, I think we need a reset. So a lot of these ingredients are underutilized. I think it's very important we highlight them because some of these crops are becoming orphan crops because they've not been tapped into enough. And I think for us, we keep talking about climate change, food security. The only way we can solve this issue is to have varieties, to tap into all the varieties of foods we have.
0: Are there any trends that you've noted regarding, for example, access to ingredients that have started to emerge? Is it, is it difficult to access some of these wild foods or even some of these specialty varieties? It is difficult. And the reason why i believe so is because
3: one is accessibility. Some of these people are growing these grains in these rural communities and they don't have access to bring it or bring it in time. And then also, the pace at which the world is moving is too fast. They do not have time anymore to cook a whole meal. Mostly, the ancient grains are small, older farmers. And because of also, some of these grains are very tedious to process because they are still done in the traditional ways. So a lot of farmers are unable to scale because they, they, it takes like months, sometimes weeks, to process it for you to get good final product. So usually they just grow what they can eat and also sometimes they are not paid fairly. So they are not motivated to grow more. So I think if we can, for me as a chef I believe if we can bring farmers along our journey and connect with them and encourage them the right way, give them the right tools to grow this food process things, things like Fonio which I'm a big advocate for Fournishan is an ancient grain. It's also part of the millet family. It's gluten-free, it's very healthy. When you think about the planet, it is so easy to grow. You, when you sow it, you can harvest within eight to 12 weeks. So just imagine how powerful that is. It's all about collaborating with farmers, collaborating with diners, sharing
0: recipes, and, and exploring varieties of food. Chef Benta is an advocate for ancient grains, such as millets and fonio. She works with women growers in the north of Ghana and with chefs around the world to promote underutilized ingredients and Fulani food and culture. If you would like to learn more, you can listen to the full-length interview with her in the Treaty Talks podcast and follow her engagement in the International Year of Millets Chef's Challenge on FAO's social media channels. Breeders follow trends to make sure they develop materials that respond to farmers' needs and preferences, and are finding methods to do this quicker, better, and more effective, now that conditions are shifting rapidly. Jeff Houghton, a world-renowned authority in the conservation and utilization of plant genetic resources, started his career as a legume breeder. We asked him for a bird's eye view on the developments he has seen over time.
5: So we have almost a pickup problem today in looking forward in feeding the world than we've ever had with expected increases in population of at least another billion mouths to feed. But we have to do that against the backdrop of climate change. And what does that mean for agriculture? It means having to cope with higher temperatures, having to cope with perhaps less rainfall or longer periods of drought, or in some cases, perhaps more rainfall in in heavy doses leading to flooding. And of course, this in turn leads to a very different uh, spectrum of of pests and and insects and diseases, so that uh, the sort of crops that we've grown traditionally, uh, many of which are quite resistant to some of these pests and diseases, are not necessarily resistant to the new ones that are coming in as a result of climate change. So we've got, a, I would say, as, as big a problem as, as ever as we faced back 50 years ago, but the conditions under which we're, we have to address and, and come up with solutions are dramatically different, and I would argue more difficult. And how we can breed crops and adapt our agriculture to to meet the new conditions, I think, is the number one challenge that, that agriculture is facing at the moment, and, and in which plant breeding, I think, can make a major contribution, obviously not the only thing, but a major contribution to, to, to solving that. Can we just introduce crops or do we have to breed And The answer to that would be both, and practically including new types of crops as well. That's adaptation. The other thing is how can we make agriculture, how can we reduce the impact of agriculture on climate change? How can we mitigate some of the uh, the effects and I think there's several ways there. Agriculture is, of course, a major contributor to climate change, and particularly through release of nitrous oxide through its methane production, but also just through, through through carbon dioxide with deforestation and other things. so how can we how can agriculture perhaps be kinder on the environment? How can it produce less greenhouse gases? Well, one thing is to is perhaps get produce larger plants, plants which have larger root systems and perhaps that are able to conserve and sequester more carbon in the soils. Perennial crops, there's a lot of interest in, at the moment in trying to look at not just planting crops annually, but having crops that will grow as perennials, and, mm-hmm. which in turn will mean that more carbon is sequestered, they have deeper and longer lasting root systems and so on, and are able to, to capture more carbon. There's some interesting cases at the moment of crosses between um, cultivated rice and a perennial rice, rice from Africa, or a risa longis terminata, which has enabled scientists to produce rice which is perennial, which doesn't need planting every year. So the plants will come up every year, which is good both from the point of view of sequestering carbon, but also of course for holding soils, perennial crops are less prone to erosion.
0: Back to you Alvaro and Luigi, we've heard from a farmer, chef and breeder. How do you relate this back to the study and how can such trends in the data from the study inform us?
2: Well, it's really remarkable how these examples uh, really bring home how interdependent we all are. The, the Edwin story, the farmer from Malawi, really resonated with me in particular. He's he's going to need new types, new varieties of both pigeon peas and groundnuts, uh, also called uh, peanuts, of course. Now it's interesting that pigeon peas are in the multilateral system of access and beneficiary of the treaty in so-called Annex One. It's an Annex One crop, but groundnuts uh, is not. And many like him will need new varieties of both, and the diversity to breed those varieties are going to come from South America, from other parts of Africa, from maybe um, South Asia, A- uh, India as well. The treaty is going to be crucial in allowing that access to diversity to occur. And um, I suspect it will be much easier for pigeon pea than for groundnut unless we expand the scope of uh, the access and beneficiary tr- uh, system of the treaty to include uh, important crops such as peanuts.
0: That's, that's really an interesting take. Alvaro, what are your thoughts?
2: Well, I was I, I was particularly
1: interested by the example given by Chef Binta. And I think it reflects how we've moved from a situation 20 years ago uh, where we were looking at the treaty. We were talking about farmers and we were talking about uh, breeders and gene bank uh, curators. And now we're expanding to many other players in the food system. So, that's very interesting in the way it works uh, because now we see that the demand uh, is growing in the in the end of the food system by the consumers by the these chefs by everyone that is interested in gastronomy uh how they they're more and more demanding a diversity of plants and a diversity of crop varieties uh some some uh, in the world of gastronomy maybe uh, going towards uh promoting local varieties of, of local products or local value chains. Other are uh, using by, uh, plant varieties and crops that are, do not exist in a given country. They bring them in because uh, they relate to other cuisines. So that creates a, a dynamic in which basically we are using plants in ways that were very, very different to what we had conceived when the treaty was adopted. We had no idea that chefs could be included in this discussion 20 years ago, but now they are important players and decision makers. And who knows, in 20 years from now, who will be the users of the crop diversity and the ones interested in it? So we need to we need to expand our horizon. We need to think in the long term and try to uh, expand the system uh, of the treaty to capture uh, this uh, this. Being future proof uh, so that we capture all of these different possibilities as we move forward.
2: And, uh, i really like to echo what Avaro just said. You know, there are 64 crops that were put on the Annex I of the treaty 20 years ago, but we've got data here from 355 crops, each one, every one of which is important somewhere. And, and we know that there may be, you know, up to maybe 7,000 crops that have been grown at some point in the past. So with climate change and increasing interest from the likes of chefs and local farmers and uh, hobbyists all over the world, we need all the options that we can get. So we, we need to be able to draw on all this diversity. And so the treaty community, the community of the treaty, needs to revisit its, its thinking to see whether it uh, can expand its horizons, as Alvaro said, and and make sure that none of these crops are really falling through the cracks.
0: I welcome all listeners to have a look at the crop metric study online and review the key findings. And for any of you who like to crunch data or use the data for future research, you can also access the full data sets. Alvaro, to conclude, how do you see the research on crop metrics evolving in the future. Are there some logical next steps planned? Yes,
1: there are four ways in which we see the research will be used. The first is quite immediate. In In the next meeting of the governing body of the Plant treaty, more than 150 members of FAO will meet and will gather to advance the treaty implementation in safeguarding, sharing and using plant diversity for food security, they will consider the study as a new resource to support decision-making. So this gives them an incredible opportunity to rethink how to expand the basket of plant genetic diversity that they will share in the future. Secondly, the, the study creates a benchmark, the foundation to update the metrics in the future. Also, as you mentioned, Casey, uh, the data sets are available. So researchers around the world uh, that have an interest in a given, in a given crop or, or, or group of crops could uh, download the data and, 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 and for more detailed insights. Finally, the study reveals some important data gaps. Beyond the 355 crops covered by the study, there are thousands of other plants that play an important role in food and agriculture. So it's very important that we further systematize our data on these plants, as this is one of the best ways to visualize them and to enable a conversation about how they can reach their full potential in the future.
0: This brings us to the end of this episode of Treaty Talks. I'd like to thank all the guests and co-hosts very much for their clear explanations and insightful reflections. I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to this episode of Treaty Talks. This podcast was brought to you by the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. You can find the link to the Crop Metric Study and other related resources, both in the show notes and on the website of the International Treaty. And that's at www.fao.org plant-treaty. If you like this episode, you can listen to more interviews in the Treaty Talk series. And please help us share the episode with your colleagues and friends. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show to listen to this and other episodes of the foodie pharmacology podcast, head over to foodiepharmacology.com. You'll find links to everything there, including some fun merch. We've also got links to our teach ethnobotany YouTube channel where you can find full video versions of the show. Thanks so much to our producers to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of co conspiracy entertainment for putting on a great show for you each and every week. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.